0: This miniseries is sponsored by the Bluefield Project. My name is Maria Kent Beers and my co-host Rachel Martinez and I are pleased to present our first very special miniseries. This eight episode compilation was created as a window into what it's like to participate in FTD research. In April, 2022, we spent five days contributing to the All-FTD study, the largest FTD study in North America. All-FTD is jointly funded by the National Institute of Aging and the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. All-FTD is led by UCSF in San Francisco and the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There are 23 participating sites across North America. The focus of this study is to understand the changes in brain function that occur as a result of disease progression and how changes differ from normal aging. The overall goal of all FTD is to prepare for treatment trials in FTLD.
1: As always, we hope this episode helps you feel more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. As a follow-up to our recap of day three, we were so lucky to sit down with Dr. Brad Beauvais. He was extremely knowledgeable. He really broke down the science and he was just enjoyable to talk with. Dr.
0: Brad Beauvais is a professor of neurology in the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science and is a consultant in the Department of Neurology and Center for Sleep Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Beauvais is a co-director of the clinical core of Mayo's Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. He is recognized with the distinction of the Little Family Foundation Professorship in Lewy Body Dementia, and he is one of three all FTD principal investigators. This is another science-based episode, but broken down with the amazing Dr. Brad Bove. Today, we have the incredible honor of sitting down with Dr. Brad Bove. Welcome to Remember Me Podcast. Thank you for being on our little podcast. Not little. (laughs) Thank you. I think what we want to do today is just really break down what is FTD and what is the all FTD study? you got to do your jump right in. I always say. Oh, yeah. I always say we're just going to jump right in. Yes, thank you. So when did you first learn of FTD and jump into this field?
2: Uh, I started in residency and fellowship, and that's when I uh, encountered my first patient uh, with FTD. And like a lot of people in clinical medicine, your first one or two patients with a unique uh, neurologic disorder really intrigues your interest, and that's exactly what happened with me.
1: Can you, as simply as you can, describe what FTD is?
2: Yes. So Frontotemporal Dementia or FTD, it's a disorder affecting the frontal and or temporal lobes Uh, that contrasts with the temporal and parietal lobes that are typically affected in those with Alzheimer's disease. Lewy body disease is a little bit different part of the brain. And what's unique about FTD is because our humanness and our individuality is so frontal and temporal lobe based, it's uh, quite striking in its presentation, uh, which also makes it that much more challenging and devastating for a lot of individuals and their families. So...
0: As you know, Rachel is a participant in the All-FTD study. Can you tell us a little bit about what the All-FTD study is doing for the FTD community and what the main objective is here with the work that you're doing?
2: Yes. Uh, First of all, what does All-FTD stand for? It's a long convoluted acronym, but it's ARTFUL Lefties Longitudinal Frontotemporal Lobar Degeneration. The artful and the lefties are acronyms from years ago. But the, the encompassing, you know, all FTD is really uh, says it all. Yeah. Right. The whole goal here is we don't have any treatment for any good treatments to help symptoms. We don't have treatments that will slow down the disorder. And there is a significant minority that have a genetic form, and we don't have a way to prevent the development of the illness. So really, the ultimate goal is treatments to help symptoms and treatments to delay or prevent development of the disease altogether.
1: You mentioned genetics, and that's a huge question for the community that listens to the podcast. Can you share a little bit about FTD genetics? And I believe there are three. And what are the big three? The three genetic mutations, right? Yes.
2: Yes. Um, The uh, roughly 20 to 40% of people with FTD have a genetic contribution. It depends on the study. Uh, A lot of people will quote around 30%. And that is a higher percentage than in those with Alzheimer's disease or similar disorders. Uh, Most individuals don't have a genetic cause or uh, contributor, at least to the extent that we know right now. For those with a genetic form, there are what's called the big three of FTD. This is chromosome 9, open reading frame 72. We often abbreviate that C9, just uh, to make it simple. MAPT or tau, to keep it simpler, and then progranulin or granulin. And so C9, MBPT, GRN are the most common. But there are over 20 genes now uh, in the other 15-plus um, uh, are much more rare than C9, Tau, in progranulin, and it seems almost every year or two a new gene is identified that uh, in a small population can explain FTD.
1: Do these genetic mutations present the same way? So when somebody comes in to see you with a C9 ORF, does it look like a map?
2: Uh, in some ways, yes, okay. in some ways, no. Okay. And there are so many variations. Um, there are those with pretty typical behavioral variant FTD, uh, which is a, a typical presentation. There's also primary progressive aphasia. Uh, but in the c 9 72 there are some that can have an almost primary schizophrenia-like presentation, so hallucinations or delusions. In tau, some people with a tau mutation, they have symptoms that look identical to those with Alzheimer's disease. Memory is affected early and there aren't really any personality changes for a couple of years at least. Uh, some with the tau mutation will have more of a Parkinson's phenotype as opposed to an FTD type of um, presentation. And then progranulin it's even more variable. Uh, frontotemporal dementia, primary progressive aphasia, corticobasal syndrome, which is more of a Parkinsonian uh, disorder. And this is what adds to the challenge of early diagnosis because it can look so variable, even in the same family. uh, Siblings or with a parent, um, vastly different symptoms.
0: Well, we've heard many times, you've seen one person with FTD, you've seen one person with FTD. And I remember when Rachel and I first started the podcast and we had no idea if people would find us or how this was all going to go. And we started getting all the submissions coming in. We're like, how is this going to work? Like, are we going to start hearing some of the same stories? And then the podcast will end. And it's fascinating how we've done over 70 episodes and those initial presentations are so different. Sometimes it's sleep. Sometimes it's you know, memory. Sometimes it's just exactly. some odd mm-hmm. behaviors and inappropriate conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it makes it all the more difficult to diagnose and to study when there's so many variables mm-hmm. at play. But speaking of the, the research side and the all FTD study, I know that primarily you are seeing either symptomatic patients or patients with Correct. a strong family history of FTD. Can you kind of elaborate on that and explain a little bit about the types of um, participants that you're looking for in the study and and what that family history kind of can look like?
2: Sure. sure. Those that uh, don't have any family history but have either clear-cut or probable frontal temporal dementia or primary uh, progressive aphasia, um, they're uh, definitely eligible to participate. those families, there. in some families, it's pretty well known in the family already that a parent and an uncle and aunt, a grandparent, so the family history is pretty convincing that something is uh, going on. Um, in other families, it's, it's not that obvious. Um, and especially if someone, for example, a parent developed uh, features of Alzheimer's disease around 75, may not think that there really is any family history. But we're we're trying to understand this fully. So uh, people who have pretty typical symptoms, those that have atypical symptoms, and those that have uh, families that uh, definitely have a uh, strong family history. And when we say family history, it's not just FTD. So it's dementia of any kind, it's Parkinson's of any kind, it's Lou Gehrig's disease, Sometimes it's profound, obsessive-compulsive type of presentation. Some will develop profound alcoholism or substance abuse. So, it in in some it's not that obvious, even for FTD, Parkinson's, or ALS.
0: And as Rachel said, genetics is a big part of you know a lot of the anxiety surrounding this disease and um, the anxiety for caregivers and families. Now. It's our understanding that you do not have to understand your genetic status Correct. to participate in the study. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of things?
2: Right, and that's very important. Uh, So first, the research can advance regardless of what a person wants to know uh, regarding themselves, their own genetic status. And that's very important because a lot of things can happen on a scientific level. Um, there's about one-third, one-third, one-third. About, uh, of those who have a family history, one-third will tell us I, if there's a way to test for this, In, I'm talking about people who don't have any symptoms but have a family history, if there's a way to test for this, I wanna know and I wanna know pretty quickly. About a third uh, will say, well, I probably will want to know in the future, but I'm not ready right now. And then uh, roughly a, th- a third will say, I-, I just don't want to ever know. And I've seen some individuals change their mind, but this is so personal. And you know, over time, there are factors that can change a person's decision uh, process. And we completely respect that. Uh, but to advance the research, and it doesn't uh, necessarily mean that you have to learn your own status. That's important to emphasize.
1: If we could switch gears a little bit, one of the questions we get asked a lot, um, either through email or people reaching out one way or the other, is what does my loved one know? Do they know something is wrong? Do they know that they're kind of acting a little bizarre? Can you speak on a little bit more of that? Like what, in your opinion, do these patients know?
2: This is also variable. So many individuals, as the illness gets into the mild stage, if uh, we can use that term, their appreciation for something being amiss is diminished. And so, and we call that lack of insight or reduced insight. And um, as the illness progresses, uh, many, uh, they really, they don't think really anything's wrong. There are others who clearly appreciate something is different and uh, they can't put their finger on it. Sometimes it's stumbling over words or just thought processes are much more effortful to carry out seemingly simple uh, activities, and so it is variable. It's something worth emphasizing. Most individuals do lose insight, but that is not true of every single individual, especially early on.
1: Kind of sticking with the FTD patients and people. What would you say is one of the most important pieces of advice or things to note for the family? How do you feel communities like ours or the all FTD study, like how can we really support the caregiver caring for the patient? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, So quality of life is bottom line. How do you optimize quality of life for the individual and how do you do the same thing for the family? And And a lot of individuals don't really see anything's amiss. The focus is on the family, and um, this is not easy. So strategies like how to decrease uh, social embarrassment. embarrassment. So Mm -hmm. can you go out to eat and hopefully have an enjoyable uh, experience uh, without causing the embarrassment? And sometimes the decision is you don't go in social settings or you go in a very guarded manner or have a low threshold, okay, if things get a little bit uh, off kilter, uh, we'll just agree to depart a little bit early. But it's trying to manage those those symptoms and and the the problematic symptoms, they can be very variable too. Uh, it's the apathy. There's a lack of initiative, uh, wanting to watch television or sleep and not do a typical activities around the house. Others will, um, their appetite will increase and especially appetite for sweets. And that can cause a lot of conflict in the home. Some will gain 20 pounds, 50 pounds, some even as many as 100 pounds because of that appetite. And others, it's more repetitive behavior or certain rituals. For example, I want to have this food type at 1130 a.m. for lunch every day. And if that is does not happen in that manner, a person will get very upset or angry. And agitation, um, that can happen, um, but it's more a personality behavior change and how do you uh, as we often say how do you use therapeutic fibs to yes. somehow get around that those problematic behaviors and not come across the wrong way to uh, the loved one but still try to manage the behaviors anyway
0: i think people really struggle with where does my mom end and her disease begin or when do, where does my father end and his disease begin you know how do i get past some of the things that occurred and, you know, the odd behaviors or, you know, people go into hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt and and just make such poor decisions. It's like, I just think not a lot of people talk about the effect on the family psychologically of all the, the symptoms of this disease. And like, we haven't been able to answer that for people when they ask, like, you know, how do I overcome this? And I think the more we understand that Some of these things are part of the disease. Maybe it will help us heal. But do you have any thoughts on that?
2: A couple. Uh, So one is, um, as a person evolves in this illness, there there are the the bad things. But there are also the things that are part of that person. Um, And it's all interwoven. And you can see elements for weeks where things are... Okay, right now, and then things are really bad at another time. And um, you know, this is easy to say, but hard to do, but this is the illness causing this, not the person. Um, another aspect is mindfulness, learning mindfulness as a family member. Um, uh, the benefits uh, um, are, are really profound and, um, meeting people who, uh, we sometimes will use this term, become a savvy care partner. Um, there are those who, um, um, through grit and a number of other things, uh, become very savvy and others uh, really have a tough time. And uh, mindfulness is a big component of that aspect of uh, being able to manage better.
0: So. Have you noticed any trends when it comes to age of onset or any changes recently in terms of like the patients that you're seeing coming in? Are you seeing a trend where you're meeting people earlier on in the disease that haven't had to go through seven doctors to get to you? Is, is there anything kind of like any new trends you're seeing in the types of patients or?
2: Yeah, there there are trends kind of on both ways. So younger individuals, This is very rare, but there are some in their 20s or 30s uh, with no family history, um, have uh, FDD, and that, as we often call the diagnostic odyssey, and um, seeing physician to physician uh, to try to get diagnosis. And it's understandable why it's so difficult, because common things are common. So uh, schizophrenia, atypical depression, um, bipolar disorder, substance abuse, um, but there are some clues and younger individuals, especially their family, they often will identify, this is not, I don't think this is a primary psychiatric problem. And so they'll raise the question or other clinicians, just as the, the knowledge about FTD becomes more widespread, uh, they'll, they'll spot it also. Uh, now that is hit or miss. So younger individuals are probably being identified um, quicker and earlier. It's still not good, but uh, it's usually delayed because of w- uh, awareness. On the flip side, we used to think this was more of an early onset or middle age illness. And we're, we're learning uh, that many older individuals who are thought to have Alzheimer's disease actually have FTD. And so this can span really the whole uh, uh, lifespan, the 20s to 80s uh, for the presentation.
0: So it it seems to us with some of those really young cases that the disease progresses rapidly. Have you noticed that in your research or in your practice that the younger onset is faster progressing?
2: It's, It's very variable okay uh, there are some in their 20s that I met 10 15 years ago that I'm still following oh, okay and so in some it's very slow um, it, it in some it seems like it's really moving quickly for a period of at least a few years and for whatever reason it seemingly slows down um, some though from onset of symptoms until frankly passing away it's one year or two years so it can be re- very rapid so it, it is quite variable
0: and I this is probably the same answer very variable but are most patients passing from what you would call complications of ftd like what does the end kind of look like i think that's a question we get asked a lot yeah
2: yeah uh, it's very rarely from the illness itself uh, with the frontal temporal uh, regions the the brainstem the base of the brain that's involved with breathing and um, monitoring the heart function things like that that's relatively preserved uh, throughout the course so it's usually uh more of a complication so swallowing can be affected and food or liquids can go down the wrong tube so to speak so into the lungs Um, another process a urinary tract infection that um Gets into the bloodstream. And so a person can get uh, septic, is the term, but uh, get an overwhelming infection. Some will have a bad fall and strike their head and not be able to catch themselves as they're falling and will get a, uh, a, a blood clot on the side of the head. Or, um, uh, and that can uh, be fatal in some individuals. Some will get a blood clot in the legs, if, especially if they're not walking that often, and that blood clot can break off and then go to the lungs, a pulmonary embolism. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of different things that uh, can happen, and those are the most common types of things. A pneumonia, urinary tract infection that becomes overwhelming, a fall with head trauma, or a blood clot that goes to the lungs.
0: Along those lines, So for my mom, it was her ALS at the end, her inability to really have the muscles to breathe and and to hold up her head, and um, she was restricted to a bed. Now, how often are you seeing patients with a dual diagnosis, or are there any statistics out there right now on how prevalent the dual diagnosis of ALS and FTD is?
2: Yes, uh, it's, it's uncommon. There are people who develop FTD and ALS, so FTD before ALS, ALS before FTD, or ALS and FTD around the same time, and there's no genetic explanation, um, and so that, that can happen. It's not that common, but that can happen. Um, one of those genes, the uh, C9ORF72, that is notorious, if we can use that term, uh, to cause FTD, ALS, or both. ALS occurring in tau is pretty rare, Um, same thing for progranulin. There are some rarer genes where ALS can happen too. But if ALS does develop, uh, just as you were saying, because it can affect breathing and it can affect swallowing, that's the worrisome thing for clinicians. If you see elements of ALS, you worry that uh, uh, lifespan is shortened.
0: Absolutely. Well, my mom's from diagnosis. She lived about four years. And then Rachel's father with his behavioral variant of TD, it was more like 10. 10,
1: 12 years. Yeah. That actually leads me to my next question. During my research, because Google, you know, you get the diagnosis and you're like, what is that? This term cognitive reserve, is that the right term? Yeah. We've heard about this. So dad, I'm shouting you out he was an avid reader. He exercised. He took his B12. He did all the things to keep himself healthy. Is that a common occurrence? If you're a healthier individual, can you live longer with this cognitive reserve or does it help keep the FTD at bay? What does the cognitive reserve do?
2: Yes. Cognitive reserve uh, refers to those individuals who basically have uh, for lack of a better way to put this, a stronger network of um, neuronal connections. And so they they can get by and do better longer. Uh, we often will hear that it, there becomes a point where it's almost like going over a cliff where um, there's a rapid change at some point, and which kind of makes sense that if there's a lot of cognitive reserve, there uh, comes a point where that network just doesn't function anymore. And uh, because it's then largely irreversible, that's why you see the more sudden change. Another aspect, and we talk about this often, and it's very, very interesting, um, depressing too, is we see so many people with an MTD spectrum disorder who have a very high baseline. I I mean, very high baseline. Um, So professionals, very successful and could this be just a bias of them seeking medical attention and um, a lot of people then talk about it or is it biologic so is there something that part of the illness allows them to be very successful early, early in life and then eventually the illness just takes over and um, it's hard to study or how to, pro- hard to prove either way uh, but many people in this field uh, see a lot of very, very successful people with uh, uh, FTD, uh, PPA, kind of along this cognitive reserve aspect. And I, I don't know if you've heard much of this phenomenon, uh, but I think it's really important. There, there is a population of people that, uh, especially those that have a primary progressive aphasia, mm. that uh, will develop this amazing new talent that they never had before. And what I mean by huh. that is um, this was first described about 20 years ago, and I've met uh, several individuals where they had no history of drawing, painting, sculpting, and they become amazing painters or sculptors. No training. And that's in the setting of a brain illness. And that, that's got to be telling us something important. And so it, this when it happens it tends to happen in people who have more of a temporal lobe variant or primary progressive aphasia. and the thought is could there be some compensation especially from the right side of the brain uh, that is trying to fight off the illness and it's being reflected in this artistic talent and so it's it may not be all that well known but that's important to emphasize that our brain is fighting this whether we appreciate it or not and um, maybe because of just the location of the temporal lobe, we see it more because the right hemisphere is trying to fight that. We, we don't have a good, good explanation.
0: for. It. So I was telling you about my mom and her art blog and how she was an artist and everything that did not start until I was like in high school. And she did that art blog for like, I think it was like four or five years. And it was just this explosion of creativity. She's always creative, but, never outwardly expressed it and she didn't have training or anything like that. And we always wondered like what inspired her to all, all of a sudden start making art and doing an art studio in her basement. And we just thought it was like she got to a point with parenting four kids and she was like, I need something for myself. But who knows if maybe, because she did have primary progressive aphasia, what, what if that was part of it?
1: We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back.
3: And now a word from our sponsor, the Bluefield Project. Hi, I'm Mary Grace. My father has FTD. My dad was diagnosed when he was 72 years old. It took years to get a diagnosis. It was shocking. We had no idea it's in our genes. I felt guilty after his diagnosis. I've been a nurse for 25 years and I'd never heard of FTD. Once I realized how rare it is, I knew I had to participate in research. Researchers need data. Every person who participates gets us one step closer to a cure. FTD is cruel. If you're like me, you have moments when you feel helpless. It's hard to see someone you love decline. Being a research participant gives me purpose and hope. At times it helps me cope with the challenges my family is facing. It's comforting to have compassionate scientists and clinicians collaborating to end FTD. Learn about FTD studies like all FTD or Gen Fee by searching ftdregistry.org.
1: Another question we have is, you know, keeping your brain fresh, doing the Sudoku, doing the crossword puzzles. What piece of advice could you offer on brain health? Is the B12 vitamin substantial? Like what things can people do to promote brain health and keep their brain as healthy as
2: possible? Yeah, there are several uh, things to comment here. One is there's growing data that uh, diet, so the Mediterranean diet, uh, mind diet, other diets that are more less red meat, more fish, uh, uh, white meats, uh, green leafy vegetables, olive oil uh, on the Sumeries uh, is healthier. Uh, physical exercise clearly uh, um, beneficial uh, through a number of studies. And this is true for Alzheimer's disease. It hasn't been studied that vigorously in in FTD, um, but in Alzheimer's disease, and Parkinson's disease. There's also data from all FTD. So this was a study, um, uh, Caitlin Castelletto uh, was the first author of this, looking at all of the families in all FTD have a mutation. Those who were physically and cognitively active, they develop symptoms related to their genetic cause later than one would predict. and their course was slower. And so the, the data you know, is still relatively small numbers, but that was very convincing to all of us that physical activity, cognitive activity, is beneficial. And so ever since that data, uh, that's a strong push.
0: Along those lines, getting back to the all FTD study, you know, what are some of the things that you've learned so far?
2: Where to start? Uh, <laughs> the, um, uh, the Artful FTDs uh, uh, components, they began roughly 2014, so this has been going on about eight years. Um, And we're in roughly our third year of the current uh, cycle. But um, uh, this will likely be going on for some time. You know, this will be going on until these are all solved and and, uh, effectively treated, uh, very likely. Um, So many things. Um, We've identified new genes. We have a better appreciation of the genetic contributions. We have a better sense of how things evolve in people who have a genetic form, those that don't. We also have a much better array of what are called biomarkers that are helping. This is really important. We have to understand what are things that changes over the natural history of the illness. We also have to understand what changes over the natural history of people who don't have symptoms. Because if we're going to prove a treatment works, we have to know what's the natural history in the absence of an intervention. And that's the core aspect of all FTD. And so this is why, and this is, arduous, so a lot of you know, meeting with a neurologist, and uh, many are very boring people, so you have to go through the interview, <laughs> the they exam, uh, the paper and pencil tests is uh, critical, uh, blood samples, MRI scans, but all of that information, trying to tease out what's changing and what's not, and this has already led to a number of clinical trials in um, uh, in play, and the markers that are being used. There's some that are similar to Alzheimer's disease, but some of the markers are different. And we just didn't know what to use as markers for uh, clinical trials uh, uh, six, seven, eight years ago.
0: Can you explain what a biomarker is?
2: Yep. So biomarker, uh, there's different definitions, but it's basically any type of measure that uh, will track. Uh, it will help with early diagnosis and or it will track with disease progression and disease progression meaning also in the asymptomatic phase uh, so when people don't have any symptoms um, and so this can include a neuropsychological tests measuring proteins in blood measuring proteins in the spinal fluid MRI scans, PET scans, um, and there's probably other biomarkers that we haven't even identified yet. And there, there's, you um, really want to have uh, PET scans that will take pictures of the burden of the abnormal proteins in the brain, because that's one of the best ways to, if, if you see proteins in the brain, and an intervention reduces that protein over time, that's very convincing that the intervention is working. Um, That's what's um, being studied in Alzheimer's disease and a lot of these treatments, including one that's now FDA approved, that's why it was FDA approved. It showed that it reduced dramatically amyloid in the brain, and so we need good PET scans. Um, uh, If we can do this by blood tests, uh, that would be even better and cheaper and easier. And Some of those blood tests, including what's called the Neurofilament Light Chain or NFL, is a blood test that we're uh, we've uh, learned through all FTD, and actually that large study which was published about a week ago
1: we heard a little bit about that from Dr. Boxer so that was exciting mm-hmm. all right so it's no secret that I'm doing all of these tests I did the spinal tap I did you know lumbar puncture. Yeah. yes all of it so just getting more information about the biomarker when you look through my blood is it Okay, there's that one biomarker there and then this Like how, what is a biomarker you, I get what it's used for, but how do you find it?
2: Good question. Uh, These are largely proteins. So first you have to know what protein look for. Then you have to have a method to detect it. And then you have to know, does it go up? Does it go down? Does it um, kind of move in an exponential rate? And uh, so there's several steps to that. Uh, and, so, and we're measuring hundreds, hundreds of proteins and hundreds of proteins in the spinal fluid. And so again, it, it's a bit of a shotgun uh, approach, but that's how you do it. And uh, uh, years ago, we just didn't have the technique.
0: Let's jump in to the exciting happenings in the FTD world in terms of research. Can you share with us the progress, exciting progress that's happening in this disease.
2: Yeah, yeah. The knowing that for most individuals, the protein that becomes dysfunctional, so something causes this protein to change its shape. um, And this is a little bit overly simplistic, but it changes its shape and it it clumps and it just messes up the normal machinery uh, of the cell, uh, either um, outside the nucleus or inside the nucleus. And that's what causes a dysfunctional nerve cell. And then that network becomes affected. And somehow these neurons, these abnormal proteins, spread from neuron to neuron or network to network. And one of the more common uh, proteins is tau. The other one is TDP43. There are some less common proteins, but most individuals, is either a primary tau problem or primary uh, TDP43 problem. The challenge for the field right now is we don't have a good test, a good way to tell someone, especially who doesn't have any family history, is it a tau problem or is it a TDP43? If somebody has a genetic form, then we know, so a tau mutation will cause a tau problem, progranulin and C9RF72 causes a TDP43 problem. There are some other genes that can also affect TDP43 or uh, another type of protein. So if we really want to affect the biology of the illness, we need to understand the protein, may be a component of inflammation, and that's where these clinical trials are. So uh, there are trials in families that have a progranulin mutation. Trials with the C9orf72. Uh, trials for uh, tau mutation. Um, it, it keeps being delayed a bit, but there's at least one in the wings, and, and well, several. But uh, and then in those uh, who don't have a mutation, um, how can we help? There's an oxytocin trial that um, the early data looks very intriguing. There is an anti-inflammatory trial that just started for people with uh, a certain type of the primary progressive aphasia problem. And so five years ago, there was one trial. Now there are numerous and several more in the wings. And the interest by the pharmaceutical industry is very high, in part because we understand the mechanisms of the abnormal proteins or abnormal genes um, fairly well, not, not as well as we, what we need, but fairly well, plus the, the interest in this from the National Institutes of Health perspective, NIH, that's the main funder for um, uh, federal research, and the amount of uh, dollars going into FTD research just keeps going up and up, and it doesn't matter um, what you know not to get political, but it it really doesn't matter who's in office and what political party Congress keeps wanting the um, uh, the support for Alzheimer's disease and related disorders. So a number of things are happening on a very positive front. You know interested individuals and families, uh, the, the research funding, these uh, natural history studies, the interest by the pharmaceutical companies, and all these discoveries that are advancing uh, uh, treatment possibilities too.
0: Now, Leah and Hillary in an earlier episode of our podcast, uh, actually in our season four finale, explained that the All-FTD study is an observational study. So I think a lot of times when people think of research, they think of a clinical trial. So the individuals that are participants in the All-FTD, does that make them be on some sort of list or more in the know and eligible for the clinical trials that are coming out?
2: Um, yes, those individuals, as a trial comes about because we know those that have a particular illness or variant, then we contact them and so if if we know them in the clinic, we contact them too, uh, but this is one of the interests that if they get engaged in LFtd it's just so much more seamless so that they're aware Now not everybody chooses to participate in the trial but it really streamlined the awareness. So actually one trial will be starting very soon and we're contacting the people in all of TD because we know them and already two are expressing interest. Another important part of research is the, the best way to know how an intervention is working is to have at least two data points in every single individual. And that's where these natural history studies come in. So um, uh, a baseline visit, another visit, if there's multiple visits, you have a good sense for that individual. We want personalized medicine uh, right. as well. And um, everybody's different, as cliche-ish as that may be. Uh, and so if you get to know people over time, it just um, it makes sense that uh, you'll be better able to know whether the intervention is helping on a more individual basis.
3: Okay, so
0: as a principal investigator in the All-FTD study, can you just share what it means to you to have people volunteer their time, come and do 13 blood draws, come every year and do their MRIs? Like, what does that mean to you?
2: The commitment, even preceding All-FTD, the commitment of individuals and families uh, to this has just been amazing. And we hear this over and over again is even if this does not help me or a member of my family in my lifetime, I want to be able to contribute to science and hopefully it'll affect me or a family member or, or my children. And so that's very rewarding. And this is, this is hard and it's stressful. I mean, traveling, um, doing these tests, uh, they're anxiety provoking and it's, um, not everybody wants to do this. And there's also an element of peace of mind after completing them and uh, seeing a lot of the results, and we hear that quite often too. So,
0: even though you don't need to get your results if you don't want them, right,
2: right, right. <laughs> but, but even you know some uh, with the uh, the neuropsychological tests, uh, I think I bombed them. Everybody thinks they bombed them. Right. Everybody. Rachel's been talking about that for days. <laughs>
1: I'm like, I swear I'm smart, <laughs> I swear I am.
2: Another aspects, uh, uh, aspect of the All-FTD, and uh, I don't want this to sound cheesy either, but this is a network of uh, now 23 sites, it's going to expand more over the upcoming year, of uh, people who are absolutely committed to this. And we all get along, we get along very well. It doesn't happen in some aspects of medicine, you know, there's a lot of competition. But, but really is, even
0: uh, any job, right?
2: <laughs> it's very true. And, uh, you know, there's uh, literally over 100 individuals as part of OFTD working in, in concert. We're also working with our colleagues in Europe and in South America and in Asia and in Australia. So this has truly become a worldwide effort. That uh, was called the Frontotemporal Dementia Prevention Initiative, FPI. Um, it is on a global, uh, global level.
0: It's so nice to have some hope. You know, because I think a lot of people like myself, and my family, you know, you go into that doctor's office and they say, she has FTD. There's nothing we can do. Good luck. And to be at this point where we're sitting with you and we're hearing such hopeful things, it just, it means a lot to me personally. And I know it means a lot to Rachel. And I thank you, Rachel, for being our Stop. lovely participant. Stop. I can't say it enough. If you could
1: dream big, What do you think All-FTD's future holds?
2: That we will not exist.
1: A special thank you to the All-FTD study for their support in the creation of this series. You can support Remember Me by visiting our website at www.remembermeftd.com. You can shop our merch, you can join Remembers Only, or you can donate.
0: If you want to connect with us, follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast. And make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple so you never miss an episode in this series. Finally, a special thank you to our sponsor, The Bluefield Project. If you want to learn more about research opportunities, visit ftdregistry.org. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey.